Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to tell you about an awesome platform called Bonfire that we've just begun to use at Majority 54. Bonfire.com is the easiest way to design, sell, and order premium shirts, all virtually and risk-free, with no out-of-pocket costs. On Bonfire.com, you can upload a design or use their templates, and they'll take care of printing and shipping to your buyers. Jason and I work with the Bonfire team to create a grab and or shirt, which I'm wearing right now, for all of you to campaign in this election season, which is available in a range of colors and styles. You could do the same by signing up to Bonfire and promoting your own fundraiser to your community. When the campaign ends, Bonfire will print and ship your products directly to your buyers. Their fundraising features let you accept additional donations on top of shirt sales, and you can even send all proceeds directly to your favorite nonprofit. Bonfire is trusted by the Women's March, California's Women's List, Rock the Vote, and now us at Majority 54. You could check out the Grab Manor shirt we designed at wondermedianetwork.com slash bonfire to continue supporting the show and our team at Wonder Media Network so they can keep creating podcasts that amplify underrepresented voices. Please sign up to their platform and keep using your own platform for good at wondermedianetwork.com slash bonfire. Hey, it's Jason. This is a pre-recorded message because if you're hearing it, we have some minor news and some major news. The minor news is that a good friend of the pod is going to be sitting in for me this week, but that's because of the major news, which is that Diana and I, we've been expecting a baby girl. And if you're hearing this, it's because we've, I guess, gone from expecting to welcoming that baby girl. So that would mean we have kids, plural now, two of them, uh, and it would mean that True has finally realized his dream of becoming a big brother. So I'll be taking the week off that uh, we have that baby girl, but it's still going to be a great episode, so please give it a listen. I don't anticipate that I will have any sleep between when you hear this and when I appear on the episode next week, but I will do my best next week, and I'll be back, and uh, thanks. We're pretty excited. I'm Ravi Gupta, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps the 54% who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those who did about the most divisive issues in our country. And my co-pilot, Jason Kander, is out today because he and Diana had a wonderful, beautiful daughter, and he'll be back with us next week. But I'm really excited because I have a guest co-host, somebody who, if you're a listener, you have met him before. Today we're going to have Mike Scher, who's a TV producer, director, actor. He was a producer and writer on The Office, co-creator of Parks and Recreation. He created The Good Place, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He was a producer of Master of None. He's been nominated for 19 primetime Emmys and won two, but his greatest distinction is being a repeat guest on Majority 54, Mike Welcome to the pod. 
Thank you. Yes, from now on, the first credit should be two-time co-host of Majority 54. That would be great. Yeah, and if all goes well, you could add to that. You'll have more uh, appearances on Majority 54 than Emmys, right? But maybe (laughs) for your life, like maybe we should root for it to be the other way around. Uh, But (laughs) I think think maybe that we we want that trend to go in the other direction. But we had a debate last night. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, and we weren't planning to spend a lot of time on that debate because uh, at Majority 54, we cut a podcast specific to that debate. But I didn't want to pass up the opportunity to ask you just your general impressions about what is that? what do we make of that debate? Well, I mean, my impressions won't be that different from everyone else's. I mean, it was a mess. It was a disaster. I think what you saw there was... A, a president who doesn't have a lot to offer in terms of a defense of his term or the state of the country. You know, normally an incumbent president four years in is touting accomplishments, right? He's saying, um, look at the economy, look at the um, job growth, look at the, these foreign policy successes we've had, look at these treaties we've signed or these deals we've signed or whatever. He just doesn't have anything. And he was already inclined toward you know, that sort of trademark bullying, interrupting, shouting down, just that sort of classic sort of strong man uh, bravado that uh, that he displayed four years ago. And so he's he's already tilted heavily in that direction. And then when he doesn't have a lot to actually say about anything he's done, what you get is yelling and screaming and interrupting and trying to just basically trying to salt the earth is the way I thought of it. Like he's just trying to salt the earth. He's trying to make this so unpleasant and just cause so much chaos and discomfort that everyone ends up doing what they did, by the way, which is say, wow, that was a mess. Instead of saying, wow, he's a mess. He's trying to just make the whole thing seem so broken and awful that he then can step into that void and say, hey, you know how everything is broken and awful? Well, I'm a strong man and I can fix this stuff. And so it was just so discouraging and deflating. And, I, and that's the point. Sometimes we attribute things to Trump that he doesn't deserve. We attribute strategies to him or we say like, what's he trying to do here? I don't think he has any strategy. He's a caged rat or he's a cornered rat. He's like a caged animal or a cornered rat, whatever your metaphor, use your own metaphor. And he's just snarling and drooling and lashing out and, and baring his teeth because that's all he's got at this point. And so... It was really deflating, and I think the job now of people who want him gone is to not get deflated, is just to, is to like pick ourselves up again and dust ourselves off again and say, this guy has to go. We can't take four more years of this. We're not going to let him discourage us and just fight back. Yeah, I agree with you that the big risk here is pushing an apathy in our politics and there was a, you know, I'm not a big Frank Luntz fan, but there he was uh, debriefing his focus groups. And he said, this is the first time in the history of debates as I've been doing these focus groups that the reaction of the people I've talked to is to say, now I'm just not going to vote. And that's depressing. Yeah. But the thing is, though, in contrast to a lot of elections that we as Democrats have fought, that's actually going to hurt Trump because he actually needs independents and uh, and undecided voters to break his way. If they stay home, we win the election. Uh, Now, I don't want that. And I also worry a little bit about not just the undecided voters not participating, but also some of the people who maybe they were Bernie supporters who were skeptical of Joe Biden, or maybe they're young people who 
didn't vote last time, but who are motivated to vote this time. I worry about them when they see such a spectacle like last night. And I wonder, you know, what is what is it that our listeners can say to those people? Like as we transition to the news of the week, what what is it you say to that person, that cousin or that aunt who's just like, forget it, I'm out? Well, yeah, that's hard, right? Because the the, the if you want to try to distill the two parties down to their essence, um, the the essence of the Republican Party platform, and this has been true since I've been alive, basically since the early Reagan era, the the sort of distillation there is government's bad and broken, and because it's bad and broken, we should minimize it. And the Democratic platform is no government's good and can help people. We should strengthen it and we should use it to to do things. And it's much easier to take the former position, right? Because if you believe that government is bad and broken. Um, then all you have to do is keep breaking it and keep messing it up. And then you get to point to it, even though you are the cause of it, you can point to what's broken and say, look, it's broken. There's no point. We need to minimize the government. It's much harder to actually construct things and build things and then create functioning systems that help people. And so I think the response would be like, look, you have two candidates here and two philosophies here. And one of them is let's break everything and then point out how broken it is. And the other one is saying, no, let's build something and hopefully it'll help people. And if you want to get, even if, you know, whatever the, the reason is that you might be hesitant to vote for Biden, for some people, it's just apathy. Some people, it's he's not, you know, liberal enough. He's unprogressive enough. He doesn't support the Green New Deal. He doesn't support defunding aspects of policing in America, whatever the case is. I think the argument would be, look, a vote for Biden is a vote that is closer to the direction you want to go, like it's moving in the right direction. And a vote for Trump or not voting is a vote to say, like, yeah, the way, how screwed up everything is, then let's continue letting it be this screwed up. And that seems to be a, a decent argument, at least in conversations I've had. And, you know, you mentioned how broken the system is. Uh, speaking of that, uh, we had a story out over the weekend from The New York Times they got a hold of a bunch of Trump's tax records, and it doesn't look good for the president. Um, he paid no income taxes. <laughs> he, That's he a very, no very polite way to say that, yeah. <laughs> uh, he paid no income taxes in 11 of 18 years examined. He paid $750 in income taxes in the year he won the presidency. And he was able to avoid paying taxes in large part because he reported losing money, more money than he made in most years, and used a bunch of creative, maybe some illegal, but definitely creative tax moves uh, to, to apply money lost or gained in given years to other years. He's also in a battle with the IRS over uh, a $72 million refund that he received. And I think perhaps most importantly, uh, he's on the hook for at least $300 million in loans that are going to come due over the next few years that he's personally obligated for. So first question for you, Mike, is uh, just even before we get into the politics, just what does this story say about how screwed up our tax code is? Like, I'm the kind of person who rarely has even itemized my taxes. And so I was reading this like, holy shit, is this like what a certain segment of society's taxes look like? Because it's it's crazy. You know? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, this is this is Exhibit A, I would say, in in a discussion about how how screwed up and backward the entire tax code is. Because for for two reasons, number one is it's one. There's this weird thing that happens in Hollywood. I'll use the Hollywood analogy. So the richer you get in Hollywood, the more people offer you things for free. 
It's really crazy. Like if you are an actor and you become incredibly successful and you're on a TV show, you are fending off calls right and left from people begging to give you free clothes and free stereo equipment and free cars sometimes and free everything because that you're famous and they want you to, to use their stuff and because their stuff then gets on red carpets and, and gets higher visibility. And so it's like the more you can afford things, the, the easier it is to get things for free. And it's not that dissimilar in just general wealth in America, right? The, the richer you get, the more access you have to really fancy accountants and business managers and people like that who say, who come to you and say, hey, here's what you do. You form a shell company and then your salary goes to the shell company and then you pay yourself a salary and you can start a pension and you can write off this tax depreciation and you lease your car and the, the, the amount of the lease is actually tax deductible for this business reason and blah, 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 blah. And it becomes easier and easier once the snowball is rolling down the hill of fantastic wealth to become wealthier. It's just this, it's the completely backward system. And when you have someone like Trump, who both is inherited an enormous amount of wealth, and then also just is venal and, and sort of craven in his worldview, uh, it becomes incredibly easy for him to find loopholes and to uh, write things off. You know, one of the biggest stories, one of the biggest sort of details of the story is that Ivanka, his daughter, was on the payroll for one of his companies and also was collecting consulting fees totaling like $750,000. That's straight up illegal. You can uh, write off consulting fees when you, uh, in, in certain situations. So he was just paying her, but he was calling it a consulting fee and then he was taking a tax deduction on the consulting fee. So if you have no shame and you have no fear of ever getting caught, you can do stuff like that. There's a million, trillion, billion loopholes that you can find in ways to just hide money. And this all comes as the share of taxes being paid by the wealthiest continues to go down. So in 1950, uh, the 400 wealthiest individuals in the country paid about 70% of their income in taxes. Uh, and that's down to 23% now. Uh, but Trump's taxes seem to raise some eyebrows just from a national security standpoint, Mike. Anything you know, stand out for you as you read these taxes just in thinking about having a president who might be exposed in this way? Of course. I mean, this is to me, this is the biggest uh, revelation. We knew the guy was shady. We knew that he went bankrupt, whatever it is, five different times. But that all that stuff was sort of theoretical. It was all in the past. And he was able, when you said, when Hillary Clinton in 2016 would say, like, he went bankrupt five times, he would say, well, that makes me smart. You know, like, of course, I use the bankruptcy code to my advantage and blah, 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 blah. And it was just like confusing. A million years ago, side note, when I was on Saturday Night Live, Tina Fey did a rant that I think about a lot where it was in the Clinton era. And she said, like, this is the this is the fundamental problem here is like Republican scandals have words like, you know, capital gains tax and marginal tax rate decrease or whatever. And Democratic scandals have words like intern. And, and, and like, you're totally right. Like when you try to pin a financial scandal on a guy like Trump, he's able to just throw dust in everybody's eyes and say like, well, I, it was smart because I did this and I depreciated that and I filed for bankruptcy and I got protection and I love debt. Debt is actually good and blah, 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 blah. And, and so all of that stuff kind of, it didn't really stick to him the way that I think Hillary Clinton and everyone who was paying attention thought it would because 
generally speaking, going bankrupt five times seems like a bad quality in a president, right? But now we have a current story. Now that now it's like this is what he this is where he is now. And where he is now is he owes a lot of money to someone. And that is a much more visceral and kind of understandable version of the thing that they tried to hit him with in 2016. I think the biggest missed story of his entire of Trump's entire first term was, and it's not like people didn't report it, it's just it didn't get a lot of play because of everything else that was going on. But Jared Kushner's family owed billions of dollars on this horrible investment they made. They bought a building, I think it's 666 Fifth Avenue, and it was a terrible purchase and they way overpaid for it. And they had this billions of dollars in debt and they just, as soon as they were in office, Kushner went around and basically like put himself up for sale. Kushner just basically says, like, who wants to buy a chunk of America? And that doesn't just mean the real estate. That means you have an enormous chip that you can call in anytime you want. Like, our foreign policy will bend to your will because my family needs to get out of debt. And that's the exact thing. We, you hear these words said a lot. But this is exactly what the founding fathers were scared of, is that foreign governments would have influence over the American government. That was, that was the, the raison d'etre of the Constitution and the, and the Declaration of Independence and every other founding document was, how do we keep other countries from having influence over us? And now we're in a position- Yeah, an emoluments clause, yeah. Yeah, and now we're yeah. in this position where the two, the, basically the two most powerful families in the country, the Trumps and the Kushners, both owed enormous amounts of money to foreign governments. Like that's exactly the wrong thing. Like that's, you know, Jimmy Carter put his peanut farm in a blind trust. Like he had to sell his peanut farm. Like it's the, it's the oldest story. We, we keep talking about this stuff and it, it's, you feel like you're just banging your head against a wall. It just explains everything that we've been thinking about and talking about and, and asking questions about. Uh, another big piece of news that we're not going to cover on this pod, but I just want to let listeners know that we're going to be covering in the weeks ahead is this Supreme Court battle. So Trump, as we predicted, uh, named Amy Coney Barrett who's a, a Seventh Circuit judge and professor at Notre Dame Law School. And she appears to be headed for a Judiciary Committee vote on October 22nd and likely a Senate confirmation by the end of the month. We're going to talk about this a lot in the weeks ahead. Obviously, we've talked about it in, in the past few episodes as well. So just stay tuned. We, we haven't forgotten about that news, but given the hellscape of uh, <laughs> news that came out this week, we, we'll, we'll skip that topic. On to a lighter subject for a second. Uh, we have Quarantine Corner, and this is your, your second at bat, Mike. Anything new happening in your world outside of politics? My Quarantine Corner isn't about a thing I'm doing. It's about a thing I'm about to do, which is there's a new book out by a woman named Susanna Clark. Susanna Clark wrote a book in 2004 called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is d truly wonderful. It's, it's a really weird and interesting and very long book takes place in early 19th century England. It's about magicians um, in, in like the sort of Napoleonic era. It's very, it's very weird and hard to describe, but it's truly wonderful. And, and when I, I read it and I was like, oh, this is my favorite writer. This woman is now my favorite, whoever this is. I'd, I've never heard of her before. It's her first novel. She's my favorite writer. And then she kind of disappeared. Um, she hasn't published anything since 2004. 
And there was an article about her recently, which I highly recommend in, in The New Yorker, about what happened to her. And she's finally published her second novel. It's called Piranesi. It came out like a couple weeks ago. And I just got it in the mail. And I just, I couldn't be more excited. I'm so excited. It, it's such a wonderful thing. And such good like self-care when there's a book that you just really want to read by a writer you truly love and admire. Uh, so that's, I received it in the mail yesterday. Uh, I got it from bookshop.org, which by the way, is a great alternative to Amazon if anyone's interested. It takes maybe a day longer, but you know, settle down people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, my, my big, um, uh, thing for the week is there's this uh, documentary called Oliver Sacks, his own life, which is about the, the neurologist and physician Oliver Sacks, who's an absolute, you know, he passed away a few years ago. And it's out in independent cinema. It's film forums, virtual cinema is where you could find it. I don't think you can get it on regular streaming services and all that, but it's pretty easy. You just go in and, and you could you could pay for it and then you have access to it for a while. And this is about a physician who, you know, my both my parents are in medicine. My dad's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. And I kept thinking about my mom, who's a nurse, because Oliver Sacks is one of these kinds of people who really learned the stories of his patients. And uh, he would always say he was trying to uh, story his patients back into the world, meaning like he would learn who they are and he would give real respect to what somebody's inner life was as he was treating them. And he would always say he treats the person, not the disease. And it's just an absolutely wonderful story about a person who takes time out to just get to know everybody around him, especially people who are suffering greatly. And it it's the kind of thing that you watch it and you're just immediately kinder to the people around you uh, and and you're you're more discerning and conscientious about the world around you after you watch it and so I can't recommend it enough that sounds awesome and that the Oliver Sacks's books are also great he the the most famous one is the man who mistook his wife for a hat I think it's called and they're just stories about people and very odd uh, neurological disorders and how he tries to sort of help them and treat them and they're all wonderful yeah and and he did it he had a New Yorker article he for a couple of years ago about taking hallucinogenics and if you just want a taste of his writing he's one of the best writers i've ever seen and you will laugh out loud at just the way he describes the whole experience and it's incredibly enlightening today's program is brought to you by athletic greens the all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance even with a balanced diet it's difficult to cover all of your nutritional bases that's where athletic greens will help their daily drink is the nutritional insurance for your body that's delivered straight to your doors. I've been using Athletic Greens for years, way before this podcast. It's the first thing I drink every morning, even before any coffee, before I do anything else. And honestly, it makes you feel like a superhero when you wake up and you take this. Their daily drink improves your everyday performance by addressing the four pillars of health, energy, recovery, gut health, and immune support, all in a drink with less than one gram of sugar that tastes great. When you try Athletic Greens through this podcast, they're also going to give you up to a year's supply of a vitamin D3K2 kit for free. So whether you're looking to boost your energy levels, support your immune system, or address gut health, now's the perfect time to try Athletic Greens for yourself. Simply visit athleticgreens.com majority to claim our special offer and receive the free D3K2 wellness bundle with your first purchase. That's up to one year supply of vitamin D as added value when you try their delicious and comprehensive daily all-in-one drink. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more comprehensive nutritional bundle anywhere else. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority. 
What interferes with your happiness? Is there something preventing you from achieving your goals? Uh, I deal with this every single day, both in my own life, but also in my job where I coach and support candidates and entrepreneurs all around the country. And just over the past week, there have been some candidates in my life, multiple candidates uh, who've publicly declared that they're dealing with depression. And I think that's so courageous. And obviously, it's something that we need more of in our political life. We need more authentic leaders willing to be vulnerable. And one thing that I've learned from some of these people is that everybody's struggling with something. We know that you as listeners are too. And often, it's really hard to ask for help. And BetterHelp makes it as easy as possible. It could either be because you're in some rural area uh, where you don't have access to a lot of facilities or you're afraid to step into a, uh, an office for one reason or another, whether it's because of the virus or because of stigma. BetterHelp is here to help you assess your needs and help match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can connect in a safe and private way online, and it's extremely convenient. And you could start communicating in under 24 hours. And you could send a message to a counselor anytime, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. So... I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com M54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com M54. We have uh, some misinformation this week, and we have so much, but we're going to focus on uh, one story, which is that uh, we still have this virus going on in this country, and uh, the Trump administration uh, is preparing a $300 million ad campaign to, quote, defeat despair about the coronavirus. And this campaign is uh, reportedly uh, featuring Dennis Quaid, Garth Brooks, and, and some other celebrities of a certain type. Keep in mind, based on the reporting from Politico that we've seen on this, the administration hasn't done a massive PR campaign about CDC guidelines, but what they're doing is, it seems, making a massive, massive federal effort to make people think that everything is going well around coronavirus and highlight Trump's actions around this. Should we be concerned about this, Mike? <laughs> I feel like these are <laughs> silly questions. <laughs> no, I'm expecting you to say no. Well, there's, there's, but, uh, there's two main things to say about this. Okay, a $300 million effort to defeat despair brought on by the coronavirus seems maybe less important than a $300 million campaign to defeat the coronavirus, right? Like let's, the, the despair goes away if the disease goes away. So maybe instead of a bunch of glitzy ads with Dennis Quaid and Garth Brooks in them, how about just more PPE and better information about wearing masks and social distancing? Maybe that would be a better use of $300 million. The other funny thing about it to me is, uh, is Quaid is fighting back and he, re he released a video uh, I think on his like Instagram stories or whatever. And he's, he's, he's very angry and he's very upset and he's fighting back on, on some of the points that uh, people have made about this. So this is from the Houston Chronicle. I'm just going to read this. See if you can spot what's funny about these statements. Uh, the campaign was a $300 million plus effort spearheaded by one of Donald Trump's close associates. By the way, the close associate is Michael Caputo, who recently resigned in disgrace after 
accusing a bunch of people of sedition and uh, apparently having some kind of um, uh, mental health issue. Cancer, yeah, um, he has cancer, yeah. Uh, and he also has, has, has cancer, yes. So uh, it was spearheaded by one of Donald Trump's close associates. Fans immediately assumed that the ad was an endorsement for the Trump campaign. Quote, it was in no way political, Quaid says in the video. He goes on to mention how he wasn't paid for the public service announcement. Nothing could be further from the truth, Quaid says. The ad is set to air on November 3rd. <laughs> so it's in no way political. It just happens to be airing on election day. I mean, this is this is one of the uh the the most pathetically uh transparent and and poorly disguised uh ad campaigns. It's basically a $300 million publicly funded ad campaign for Donald Trump. That's all this is. It's his wild attempt to try to do what he's been doing, which is to say everything's fine. We're turning a corner. He's been saying we, we're turning a corner since March, by the way. But it's just it's literally taxpayer money. Three hundred million dollars of taxpayer money is being put into an ad campaign to try to get people to believe that really, actually, the coronavirus isn't that bad. Everything's fine. And Donald Trump's doing a great job. That's all this is. And it's uh, it's the idea of politicizing these the, he Donald Trump has figured out a way to politicize the, uh, the health and human services department the, all, all the CDC the post office, post I mean, office. there's literally yeah. there's literally no corner of the federal government that he has not turned into a uh, a a money draining advertisement for his own greatness and it's just this is part of what's so exhausting right is like there's no there's nowhere to turn everywhere you turn he has completely taken over uh, whatever organization you're talking about and bent it to his will and forced it to basically become an advertisement for his own greatness. And it's exhausting. And I would say for listeners at home and thinking about how do you, how do you as one person go up against the weight of massive campaigns like this? Well, I think, I don't think this is going to work. I mean, it's appalling and it's, it, and it seems like it could be illegal and it certainly could be a, a hatch act violation in spirit, if not in the letter of the law. But I think Biden showed us the way last night when he talked about the empty chairs at people's tables. I think people can't ignore. I think about this when Trump keeps claiming that he's driven down pharmaceutical prices. And I was, I was waiting for Biden to just say, look, if your pharmaceutical prices have been going down, then maybe you could trust the president. But if you're at home and you don't see evidence of that, then maybe you're going to trust me on this one uh, and the fact checkers on this because you're, you know, your own bills aren't lying to you. Um, and I think about that with the virus is like, People are living this uh, and it's not going away. And every attempt they make, it's it's one thing if it's something extraneous to people, but the virus is is, is so real that Trump seems to have been failing so far in in convincing people of his his uh, alternative facts on this. I think you just, as, as people at home, just point to the lived experiences that you have as opposed to trying to debate out what Vox is saying or this person is saying, because although I think the fact checkers matter, like that's more complicated route to get to where you need to go with people than what's in front of their eyes. I think that the, I think you're right. And, and I also would point out that under the most rosy projections, the, the most conservative estimates, it's now whatever seven plus million people have gotten it, which basically means in this country, one out of every 47 or so people in the entire country has contracted coronavirus. The actual numbers are probably much higher. And so you don't need to do a lot of deep digging or a lot of research or a lot of, you know, a complicated calculation in order to get people to understand the impact of this thing. It's, it's almost impossible 
that you, whoever you are, don't know someone personally who has gotten coronavirus. Like, I mean, it's one out of every 47 people in the entire country, at least. And so it, it's a hard argument to make if you're Donald Trump that this isn't that big a deal when one out of 47 people has contracted it and, and more than 200,000 people have died from it. And I know that he didn't cause the virus, but he sure didn't do anything to stop it. From the beginning, his attitude has been, it's not a big deal, it's fine, it's the flu. And then of course, in private to Bob Woodward, he was like, this thing is a killer, we're all gonna die. And then he would come out and say- And I think he even said explicitly, it's worse than it's the flu, worse. like he the exact did, opposite did. of what he yes, said. Yes, he sure did. <laughs> so so this, this, is an, this is in terms of talking to people who might be uh, undecided or who might still be supporting Trump, it's like, well, who's in charge then? Like, he's the guy in charge. The guy in charge is supposed to protect us and keep us safe. And not only did he, it's not like he tried something and failed. He didn't try anything. He actively didn't try anything. He actively passed the buck and said, this isn't my problem. It's up to the states. It's your problem. You guys have to do this. And he left about 100 strategies on the table that he could have employed in an attempt to make this better and easier on people and to have fewer people get sick and fewer people die. And that's kind of the end of the argument. Like, it's just, he just blew it. On to unsolicited campaign advice. Mike, what do you have for us this week? So like we said before, this issue of um, Trump's debt, to me, I think it's not a winning argument to talk about um, how he only paid $750 in taxes. It's, it's fine. And I, and I think that like when you're talking about the image that he projects of, of, of this high-flying billionaire, and obviously all of the times he's lied about how much he paid in taxes, like all of that stuff should be investigated. And frankly, when he's out of office, he should be prosecuted for it because it's tax fraud. But I think there's a better argument in terms of the, how to talk about this in the last month of the election. And the argument is basically everyone is familiar with being in debt. Everybody has owed money to someone or something at some point in his or her life. People have credit card debt. They have student loan debt. They have car payments. They, um, they incur medical debt, whatever it is. You know how bad it feels to, to owe money, how, how anxiety creating it is, how, how, how anxious you get, how uh, it weighs on you. It's kind of like a dark cloud that hovers over you all the time. When I graduated from college, I had tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. And I thought about it every day because every month that bill comes and you're paying it off, you know, whatever, $217.08 at a time. And the payments are just going to stretch out for 30 years. And it's impossible not to think about it. I think the winning argument here um, when you're talking about Trump and his finances is think about how much anxiety you had when you had debt. Think about how often you thought about it, how you felt like, man, I would do anything to get out from under this $3,800 visa bill or whatever. Now think about what you would do if that amount of debt were $400 million. Think about how <laughs> the lengths you would go to to get out from under a $400 million dark cloud that's following you around. It explains so much about Trump's behavior. It explains so much about the way he sucks up to foreign dictators and foreign rulers and billionaires. And, and if, you, if we can really make people try to feel that viscerally, like imagine that you're walking around and you're, you're in the White House and you're, you're, you get to go golfing all the time, but everywhere you go, 
every day when you wake up, you remember that you are $400 million in debt to people who, who, ha who control you, who can basically ruin you, who can bankrupt you, who can embarrass you, who can take away your solid gold apartment in the sky in New York City. Like that is to me the winning argument for why Trump can't be president anymore. And ha because there is no end to the lengths that someone will go to to get out from under a $400 million hole. Yeah, and you think about it, if he would accept stolen secrets from foreign governments, where's the line that he would draw that he wouldn't accept money? Uh, right. and, and you think about it from the other side of the transaction, if you're Putin, what the hell does Putin care? Like, why wouldn't Putin try to, to help solve this financial issue? It's, it's, it's a pittance compared to what they spend on every other effort to thwart America. And so, yeah, there's, like, there's, no, there's, there's no explanation anybody could give as to why this wouldn't be a huge threat to us. We have our Midlife Crisis Corner, and this week's Midlife Crisis Corner is brought to you by Athletic Greens, which is the all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance, and it's developed with the best in mind and part of the daily regimen of thousands of high performers worldwide. And my big thing I've been working on lately is screen time. I watched The Social Dilemma. It freaked me the hell out. <laughs> uh, it's on Netflix, I believe, just about how manipulated I've been by phones. And I feel like I'm generally decent about phones, but I just started to look through my data and I'm just on my phone way too much. And so I've created a couple different systems to get this under wraps. Number one is I have a physical place in my apartment where I keep my phone. And if I need to use my phone, I have to walk over to that place. I don't take my phone with me anywhere else. Second, uh, every day I, in my journal, I write down my screen time from the day before. I don't just look at it uh, on my phone. I write it down and I track it. And then the third is one day a week, and it's usually Saturdays, I plug my phone in in my apartment in said place that I mentioned, and I leave my apartment. As long as I don't have any obligation that requires me to be near my phone, I leave my apartment and my phone there. If I need to use my phone, I have to come back to my apartment to use it. And so it's like one day where I'm just untethered from my phone. And one thing I learned from that is I'm like a drug addict with my phone. <laughs> like when I don't have my phone on me, I'm constantly thinking about it. I'm concocting reasons why I have to go back to my apartment without realizing that it's really to get my phone. I'll be like, oh, I need to get a drink of water. Like as if I can't get a drink of water anywhere else. So I need to pick up this thing or whatever. And I find myself constantly going back to my apartment without like subconsciously without realizing, oh, I'm I'm trying to get to that phone. Uh, and so it's, it's good for awareness, if nothing else. You know, mine is actually similar. I have... Uh, we have two dogs. They're both little mutts. And uh, one of them is like a six month old puppy uh, who's in a little Australian cattle dog mix. And she's uh, she's rambunctious and cute and, and uh, likes to go on walks. And I've started doing this thing where when we go for a walk, I leave my phone in the house and I don't, I don't like listen to podcasts. I don't make phone calls. I don't scroll through emails. I just am like with my dog, even for like 20 minutes. And it's like a little boring and also great. It made me think of like, yeah, it sounds yeah like it, it's just a little moment where it's like, I'm going to leave all of the madness behind. I'm not going to ingest any news. I'm not going to devour any uh, horrifying tweets that people have uh, written about how screwed up the world is. I'm just going to like hang out with my dog for 20 minutes. And, uh, and it, 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 it's very cleansing. I mean, I'm with you. Like, I feel like I occasionally I will absentmindedly pat my pocket 
where it's like, why isn't, why is my pocket less heavy than it usually is? Because uh, it's, a, you know, because we are all drug addicts. But I, I really have come to enjoy this little 20 minute break of just like me and a dog walking around the neighborhood, sniffing stuff and just listening to the air. Well, uh, as we wind down, we have grab an oar. Uh, we like to end with action, Mike. Uh, anything you want to point our listeners to? Well, we're in the home stretch here, right? It's we're basically uh, we're basically a month away. So the normally the normal sort of like appeals for money, you know, they'll continue. And it's not that money can't be helpful at this point, especially in targeted races where you know there's it's a close Senate race or a close congressional race or even a down ballot race. So money matters and money, money counts in the last month. But what matters more is volunteering, I think. Um, now is the time to say, okay, in the home stretch, um, the important thing is reaching voters. You can do any number of things. You can, um, the woman that I'm uh, running this new show with, um, her name is Sierra Teller-Ronellis, she postcards like a, a crazy person. She, she writes personal postcards that get sent to voters in various districts all across the country that just says like, hey, here's who I support in your race. I think it's really important that you vote one way or the other. You know, I'm a real human being and I hope that you vote. It's really cool. She sent out thousands and thousands of postcards um, and you can do that. You can make phone calls for candidates you support. You can knock on doors in certain places that are, you know, in a, in a COVID friendly way volunteering starting now, starting on October 1st, may actually be more important than donating money. And so if you've ever had an inclination to volunteer in any capacity, whether it's by phone phone banking or, or, or fundraising or knocking on doors or postcarding or whatever it is, do it. Or poll working. Or poll yeah. working, as we talked about that last time I was on. Yes, there are many, many, many ways to to be become active, to become an active participant in the democratic process. And I wholeheartedly encourage everyone to do that. It couldn't be more important. Well, thank you, Mike, for joining us. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, Mike is uh, at Ken Tremendous on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is, of course, majority at Majority54 on Twitter. Uh, remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. I wanted to tell you about a new podcast called To See Each Other. To See Each Other is a documentary series that complicates the narrative about rural Americans in our most misunderstood and often abandoned communities. Host George Gale, a leading grassroots organizer, travels to Michigan, Iowa, New Jersey, North Carolina, and Indiana to reveal how small-town folks are working together in fights for everything from clean water and racial justice to immigration rights and climate change. The show believes that when we see each other, we'll understand that we can never give up on each other. Subscribe to To See Each Other wherever you're listening to this show. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.